Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the meaning of science fiction. I'm Charlie Jean Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks rather a lot about science. And I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. Today, we're going to be talking about dialogue, and we've got an incredible special guest, the supremely talented and wonderful Javi Grio Marxowach, who is the creator of one of our favorite TV shows, The Middleman, and also the co-executive producer of both The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance, and Cowboy Bebop. So stick with us as we have a dialogue about dialogue. Thank you so much for joining us, Javi. Oh my God, thank you for having me. Are you kidding? I've, I've been seeing like word of your podcast on Twitter for so long and 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 I'm now on it. I'm so excited. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> it's so awesome talking with you. So today's episode actually comes about because of a question that we received from a listener named Len in Winnipeg. And this is what Len had to say. Hi there, OAC pod people. It's Len in Winnipeg. I'd love to eavesdrop on any sort of discussion you want to have of how dialogue relates to world building. Javi, how do people reveal something about the world they live in and their cultures and, you know, their cultural background in the way that they talk? Um, I have been accused of, I have frequently been accused of having characters who all sound like each other because I, I I think that when I write something like the middleman, I have a very idiosyncratic personal voice that I'm basically trying to indulge. But, I, you know, so I've been trying to figure out how does one have a voice and then have characters that also have have their own individual voice and, and that their voice reveals all that stuff. I, I was reading a little bit about Shakespeare because Shakespeare is sort of one of my lacunar voids. Not having English as a first language and a few other reasons, it's never been for me the intense field of study that I think it is for a lot of other people who make English their language. So Shakespeare would write in iambic for certain characters. Certain characters would be in, you know, in rhyming uh, iambic. Some would be in just plain blank verse and all of that, depending on their social status and all of that. And and I and, and it does make me think a lot about kind of how I write characters and what their dialogue reveals about who they are. I think the root of all good drama is that the characters who are involved in a scene have very distinctive wants and desires out of the scene and out of the story. And how they pursue that is sort of the core of drama for me. So, you know, I think ultimately being somebody who has that kind of Amy Sherman Palladino, Aaron Sorkin sort of <laughs> ideation in that my characters all kind of do sound very similar. I think the thing that, that I definitely do to differentiate is to be very, very rigorous with myself about what the characters want and what they need and what the shape of the scene is rather than do I just love the sound of my own voice, you know? And I think that and by the way, when I bring up Amy Sherman Palladino and Aaron Sorkin, I'm not comparing myself to them in any way. I think that they're both uh, uh, vastly more accomplished than I am. We're going to tweet right after this. Javi says he's the new Amy Sherman Palladino. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I should be so lucky. Uh, but uh, no, so, you know, I think, I think ultimately the answer to your question is so intertwined with character and whether you as a writer have really, really thought about what this character is coming into scene wanting, you know? 
Right. But for example, when you're when you're writing the Dark Crystal, the Skeksis talk one way, the Gelflings talk one way. You know, how do you kind of think about their cultures or their kind? Of- I think like the question is kind of like how is their dialogue part of building the world? You know, like you build the world with sets and with costumes, but also just talking. Well, to bring it back to what I was saying before, you know, you're watching one of my shows because everybody sounds the same. So that's how I'm building that world. You know, they take place in a very idiosyncratic <laughs> personal space of mine. Uh, you know, you watch the middle, man. You, you know, it's, it's not hard to discern. I think when I'm doing stuff that is intended to have a more realistic or a world building kind of quality to it, I think with The Dark Crystal, it's really interesting. The, the original dialogue in that film was written after the film was made because Jim Henson wanted the film to basically play in Skeksis as its own language. Gelfling, I think, would be English, and then the Podlings would speak their own language, right? So, yeah. so he literally just threw you into that world and hoped that you would get it, and then nobody got it. So he had to go back with like a VHS tape of the movie and rewrite all the dialogue with the screenwriter so that it would match oh, the movements wow. that had already been been done. So with Dark Crystal, you're looking at that and you're going, okay, so the Skeksis have this, we've inherited this sort of stilted, idiosyncratic pattern for how they speak, right? So going back to just looking at that and, and that accident of creation created a very specific way for those characters to speak. I think the other great thing about the Skeksis is that every facet of the Skeksis was designed to make them just be awful. And there was a sort of delicious awfulness to them, you know? So mm-hmm. the way you world build mm. with the Skeksis and what you, exactly. And they're just, they're just horrible, <laughs> you know? And, and they're so unabashed, you know, writing the Skeksis was kind of like, writing a character based on our current precedent because they're, they're thoroughly unashamed <laughs> of their own awfulness, you know, and they revel in it in a way that is, so with the Skeksis, you, you have all of this fun, you know, because you just get to be the biggest douchebag you ever wanted to be. And then you've got nine of them to spread that around with, you know, and because as characters, they're so clearly defined by occupation, you know, the collector, the treasurer, the emperor, the scientist, the chamberlain, that also kind of gives you an idea of how to um, just kind of how to platform them, you know, but it really was just oh. about embracing the awfulness. And look, they all had very strong individual wants also, you know, the scientist, um, you know, was very much about sort of tinkering in his lab and using invention to get himself ahead in the political hierarchy of the Skeksis. And he's always thwarted in it. So he, his voice always had that bitterness to it. You, you get to look at those dynamics and build those exactly into their, into their expression. One of the things you notice with the scientist is, he, he uses a lot of like high level insults. Like he calls people things like prokaryotes and things like that. I don't know if that word made it onto one of our scripts, but he always had that oh. kind of, so he's basically, you're writing him as a very enlightened, very smart person who thinks everybody else is a moron and yet he can't get ahead, you know? So I think we inherited a lot of great stuff with those characters and our job was to expand on that. I think with the Gelfling, the Gelfling in many ways were the weakest link in the original movie and we had to kind of build a civilization for them. And their speech was always sort of plain but noble, <laughs> ah. you know. So, mm-hmm. so that was kind of how we wrote them. And you know, I think. Look, I think the other the, with the world building, it's like with the Dark Crystal, we didn't we didn't want to use accents. We didn't want to use um, any racial cues to anybody. That seems wise. Because <laughs> the last thing you want is for somebody to say, "Oh, the Dusan are clearly a stand-in for the Arabs," or what? You don't want that. I mean, that's just stupid. Yeah, that's kind of Star Wars stuff. And, uh, and uh, ah. wow, yeah, right? <laughs> so we were very cognizant of that. And I think it became about kind of using their 
some of their their plain but noble spokenness give them the character of a race that was entirely of their land and all of that. But then, you know, we also had different clans that we would give them different. For example, the Dusan, right? The main Dusan in The Dark Crystal was Rakir, who is one of the two only pop culture jokes in that in that show because his name's an anagram for Riker. Um, ah. Yeah, because we always saw him as Riker. We, you know, because Riker, Riker's ah. kind of a sexy dude, you know? <laughs> so... Yeah, <laughs> that's kind um, of awesome. Yeah, so his but but his his culture was very sort of mystical and kind of death obsessed, you know, but in a positive way. So they were very poetic in their language. The Stone in the Wood Gelflings are sort of the salt of the earth warrior Gelflings. And I wrote an episode that featured this character, Madra Farah, who was the Madra of the Gelfling clan, and I loved her. And I was trying to figure out how to write her and how to put all of those qualities that I felt were germane to her. And what I realized was I really wanted to write her like Maximus in Gladiator. You know, oh man, like sort of very like mid Atlantic posh, but still like rough, you know. So I just played Gladiator nonstop while I wrote all of her scenes, and <laughs> you know that quality of that character. You could see, you know, in, in the way that she spoke, you could see her nobility, but her also lack of bullshit. You know, I love that idea of having the voice of Maximus like in your head for this character. I mean, it reminds me of, we were just watching um, Never Have I Ever on Netflix, which is a show about, you know, a South Asian teenager who has John McEnroe in her head as like her voiceover and as like (laughs) the voice that speaks for her. Uh Mm -hmm. And it created this really delightful kind of cognitive dissonance to have this like foul-mouthed white guy tennis player dude like in the head of this like teenage Indian girl and like it gave this new side to her character you know it it was it's kind of like bringing a Roman warrior into the dark crystal you know it's like suddenly you have a really different feeling about that character just because of the voice you know just that hearing that voice you know over top of another voice is really it just adds like a whole other layer. No I was gonna say one of the things I like about Maximus is that for a character in a movie that is as male as Gladiator is, he's weirdly sort of asexual. You know, he has a wife and a kid, but they die. Mm-hmm. He has a woman that he was yeah. a lover of, but he was her lover like decades before. So he really only exists for his code of honor and all of that. And I th- feel like that was such an important thing to give Madra Farah, you know, especially Madra Farah. Like, mm-hmm. like she is a warrior queen. And she is a person of honor and all of that before any of the considerations of gender enter into into how you see her, partially because the world of the Dark Crystal is a matriarchy. So there's no question that she, you know, so, so you don't have to address those issues. She can be anyone you want her to be. And uh, and I just really appreciated being able to, 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 to do that and to give a female character a voice that didn't feel gendered, but that existed only because of that inner sense of nobility, you know? And I just really like that. Yeah, right. So we've got a couple of clips. Uh, one is from the book of A Game of Thrones by George R. R. Martin. And the other is from the TV show Game of Thrones. And they're both the exact same scene. And I'd just like to play them right now because I think they illustrate an interesting point. Direwolves lose in the realm after so many years, muttered Holland, the master of horse. I like it not. There are no direwolves south of the wall. No, there are five. You want to hold it? 
So what's interesting about those clips is that the book version is a lot more formal and it kind of gets back to what you were saying before about slightly stilted dialogue, like yeah. I like it not. And we all grew up on like Marvel comics where people talked in like big kind of speech and Star Trek would they be like, it is the will of Landru and stuff. <laughs> and it feels like... <laughs> That's the one you reach for, really? The Landru episode? Wow. I mean, my head. You know, let this be your last battleground. You know, and like, I feel like there's a lot more tolerance. There's a lot less tolerance, I guess, now than there used to be for people speaking in these kind of heightened, faux Shakespearean ways in pop culture. Like, and you worked on, I know, Shannara, where they mostly talk like they're on Smallville. Like, they don't talk like they're in, like, a fantasy narrative. So can you speak to that about, like, the kind of decreasing tolerance for, like, high fantasy speak? Well, I find that ridiculous. You know, first of all, like, there's, like, one of the tenets by which I live my life is that there is no such thing as naturalistic dialogue. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think all dialogue is artifice. I mean, even you look at Flaubert, who's supposed to be one of the big naturalist writers of, of his time and, and all of that stuff. And it's like, everything they're doing is invented. You know, anytime you put dialogue on a page, you're inventing something because real life scenes that you play out with people don't have buttons, you know, unless you're having a fight with your partner and they do that thing where they, they, they zing you and then they walk out of the room. Can you explain what a button is for those of us who are button uh, ignorant. <laughs> okay, so I look at all scenes and pretty much everything as a three-act play, okay? And, you know, you can have the, the setup, the development, and the prestige or whatever you want to call it, you know? And when you start looking at scenes that way, you see that every scene has, you know, what I call the button, which is that last line that ends the scene and makes you... It's, it's like the, it's the line that goes, and scene, you know? It's mm-hmm. the line the person walks out of the room in. It's It's... The kicker. If you, if you have a dramatic enough partner, sometimes your partner will try to button the fight. You know, like, you know, the partner will come in and say something horrible and then leave the room. And you're like, you can't button this fight. That's not fair. You know, so <laughs> so already, you know, you're talking about scenes, drama. These things all have structure. And when you're writing to structure, everything is going to be artifice, regardless of how naturalistic you want it to sound. You know, for you to tell me that people have less of a tolerance for high fantasy dialogue, I think that's interesting because I don't have either a tolerance or an intolerance for it. I just find it what jars me isn't whether language is one way or the other it's when it's not consistent for me i don't have an intolerance for high fantasy dialogue i completely understand why the people who made game of thrones completely walk away from that and i think it was very successful for them because they wanted these characters to be very relatable so i had another clip i wanted to play which is from one of my favorite tv shows the expanse Beltalada. listen up this is your captain And this is your ship. This is your moment. You may think that you're scared, but you're not. That isn't fear. That's your sharpness. That's your power. We are belters. Nothing in the void is foreign to us. The place we go is the place we belong. This is no different. No one has more right to this. None more prepared. In your ladder, go through the ring. Call it their own. But a belter opened it. We are the belt. We are strong, we are sharp, 
So what's interesting about that is that, you know, they don't just have like their own way of speaking, but they have their own kind of Creole, their own kind of language, and it comes out in everything that they say. And how useful or how important is it to create a brand new language or elements of a language when you're trying to create another society? Like with the Klingons on Star Trek, for example. I think I think that you know when it works, it works really well. You know, I think I, I actually think of um, Anthony Burgess and uh, and A Clockwork Orange, both in the book and the movie. How how much the um, the Droogs had their own sort of quasi Russified English that they spoke in. I think that if you're a writer or creator who is good with that sort of stuff, it's great. I mean, I think with Klingon, it's phenomenal. You know, I love the idea that Klingon is the most widely spoken artificial language in the world. I think that that culture really sort of was able to transcend going from being a pretty clumsy stand-in for the Soviet Union to being a pretty clumsy stand-in for feudal Japan to being its own thing. You know, and I think part of that is is that language and the way that the series sort of built on that. I couldn't do it. Every time that I try to create a Creole or, or a, you know, Patois for my characters, it sounds horrible. You know, I think the problem is, is that people aren't very good judges of what they're good and bad at, <laughs> you know? So, I, so I, don't, I don't know that it's one of those things where it's like, fundamentally bad or fundamentally good. I think that especially is so much in the execution. I mean, how do you approach that? Creating that kind of artificial language for your characters when they're of an alien race or something, since both of you have worked in that in that field extensively. I think the thing that's really interesting about Klingon, for example, which is not something I could ever replicate in my writing, is that, you know, they hired this guy, Mark Okrand, to write it. Right. Um, and he had a background in linguistics. They also hired an outside person to write the Belter Creole for uh, the Expanse. I mean, so they brought in experts basically who were like, I know how to actually build a language because I've studied linguistics and I'm like a brain farm. And so I think that's part of what's so satisfying about Klingon. For me, what I tend to experiment with most is, you know, I have a lot of robot characters. And so, um, and in the novel I'm working on now, I have a lot of robots and, and uplifted animals, and they have all different kinds of cognition. And so I like to play around with the idea of people communicating, not with an accent or with a specialized language, but maybe with different expectations about what language is for. I think that's really fun. I think that's probably the most that I've ever done with it. Charlie Jane, you you invented a whole culture with its own language. And I feel like in City in the Middle of the Night, the Gellet have like a psychic language that they're using where they're communicating through touch and through sending each other images. Um, I mean, in City in the Middle of the Night, I definitely tried to kind of imagine what it would be like to have nonverbal communication and how that would shape your cultural concepts. And it was really hard. And I, you know, I feel like I just barely scratched the surface of it. Definitely in All the Birds of the Sky, I tried to have the birds, whatever the birds are talking, they're a little bit more formal. They're a little bit more kind of like highfalutin than everybody else. They talk in a slightly more kind of like fancy way, I feel like. It's been a while since I look back at it, but I love how your robots talk, Annalie. Yeah, no, everybody seems to think that that's really great. And I just based it on how computer networks function and how when one computer is sending data to another computer, the kinds of um, signals that they send each other, the kinds of information that they give about the information, because that's what computers do a lot is they're sort of saying like, all right, I'm giving you some information. It's encrypted in this way. It's formatted in this way. Okay, here's the information. And so for computers, talking isn't just about what you're saying. It's about how you're saying it, how it's packaged, um, who can hear it. Well, you don't, you don't want to have a, a syntax error is the worst thing you can have in your computer, right? 
Right. You certainly don't want to have a spin factor. You don't want to have things like dropped packets if right. you're communicating over a network. Or if you do have dropped packets, you want to have your language set up so that if you lose some bits of it, you can still reconstruct what was actually said. Um, and that's one of the beauties of internet communication is that even when there's dropped packets, you kind of can reconstruct the data because it's sort of built for unreliable networks. And so I think to me, like I said, that's what's fun is is imagining cultures where language isn't just about like chit chat, it has like a kind of, you know, productive function, or it's like part of building something that isn't just, you know, us talking about Star Trek, which is, you know, really, I guess language really is just for talking about Star Trek. You know, having read a number of books written by each of you, um, I think what's interesting what? is, is that, yes, yes, I'm an avid, I'm an avid reader of the uh, Charlie Jane and Anna Lee Starship. Uh, <laughs> Mutual fan club here. <laughs> uh, no, but, but here's the thing. I think that in success, you don't really, I think of any of the books that, that I have read that you guys have written, and I never stop to say, oh, I'm reading this kind of uh, constructed language now. I'm just reading a book that you wrote, and the world seems to be present itself in a very matter-of-fact way, you know? That's sort of the trick of it. At the end of the day, it's not whether any one version of dialogue is good or bad. It's a question of does it take you out of the narrative? You know, and and or does right. it just keep you seamed into it in a, in a in a seamless way? The other thing I was going to mention is is you know in the Dark Crystal we actually had a constructed language, which was the the Podling language. In the original film, the Podling language was, I believe, Serbian. And uh, the oh Ser- wow, really? Yes, that is so weird. Okay, I mean it kind of makes sense actually because they are a people who were being genocided and stuff. The Serbs didn't much like that apparently. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> So for, for the series, we created, uh, well, not we, uh, Joe Lee, uh, J.M. Lee, who wrote the YA novels and is also like has an education in linguistics, went ahead and wrote this language and created its grammar and all that. And there is a formal Gelfling language that then Victor Yared, he was the puppeteer behind Hup and did all of the production sound capture and his voice, actually. He learned the language. And there were times when Victor would call Joey with a, with a question and Joe would be like, I just created the language. I don't speak it. <laughs> You know, um, wow, which is another weird thing that happens when you have constructed language and all of that. So, and I, I've worked on a number of shows that because the hundred had a D- David Peterson uh, did a conlang for us on, on that show. The grounder language was actually a completely created language, and you know David Peterson's the guy who did the uh, the Dothraki language and the Valerian language and all of that stuff. So he's kind of the dean of creating fake languages for TV shows. I wanted to mention a fun thing about that, which is. I mean, I always have to mention Doctor Who in every episode of our podcast. It's yes. just a thing. So in the Doctor Who episode, The Santaran Experiment. Oh, God bless you. I love that one. <laughs> I know. So Bob Baker and Dave Martin, who wrote The Santaran Experiment, mm-hmm. were obsessed, obsessed with trying to come up with future English. And in another one of their stories, The Invisible Enemy, all of the signs on the walls are written in this weird phonetic fake English. Uh-huh. And like the word exit is spelled E-G-G-S-I-T. Um <laughs> And it, Invisible Enemy is really fun if you just pay attention to the background. This is just very Ian M. Banks. I know. That's like, Ian M. Banks did a whole novel called Fearsome Engine spelled phonetically, where he, everything is phonetic. It drove me nuts. What the hell? It, yeah, that is a little <laughs> annoying. But he probably was paying attention to this. So anyway, in the Santaran experiment, Bob Baker and Dave Martin wanted all of the astronaut characters who are far future humans to speak a little bit different from normal people. And so they wrote them that way, but then they also specified that the story had to have only South African actors playing those future what? humans <laughs> because what? their South African accents 
would be just a little bit different and the way they talked would be a little bit different from like modern British English. And it kind of gives them this weird kind of like slightly just different feel. And that, that was supposed to be the language of the future. It was supposed to be like how English would change over thousands of years. You know, if I can throw an interesting wrinkle into what you just described, I've seen the Santaran experiment twice and it literally stuck with me from when I was nine years old uh, because I watched it in Spanish. Um, oh. So everything that you've just said completely blew past me because when it was being shown in Puerto Rico, when I saw it those times, it was never in English. So, and I don't know that the people who did the dubbing for it knew that. So I Probably remember watching not. it. No, and everything was yeah. very uh, flat, sort of, you know, in a kind of Latin American sort of accent, but but none of that was there. That's that. Now I want to go walk back and watch it in English. Yeah, I had a long conversation with the Spanish translator for Autonomous, which is my novel about robots, because the robot's gender changes, half, or the pronouns that the robot uses for itself change halfway through the novel. And so he was really concerned that he wanted to show that. But of course, robot in Spanish is it's la robata, I guess. Um, and so it's feminine. And so he was like, how do I show that the robot is changing? So he came up with a whole scheme to like represent the pronoun shift. Um, But it's like, it's really hard. Like when you translate stuff like that, like accents or like weird ticks of a language, it just, you lose something. Yeah, Um, Most romance languages have gendered nouns. And I don't think that's something you, you, you hit as much on in English. (laughs) Nope. You don't really have it. Well, we have it a tiny bit. Like ships are, are feminine, right? Like it's always she, but yeah, it's, it's not built into the, you know, it's not built into every pronoun that you use or whatever. Which is bizarre. I don't know how those choices were made or, or, you know, I mean, obviously evolution made those choices, but it's, it's funny, we should circle back to this and, and to my experience as, as uh, you know, writing in English and all of that. I think if you watch The Middleman and you feel like the dialogue is very weird and idiosyncratic in meter, I think that's because it's pretty much being translated, not from Spanish, but from the mind of somebody who spent the first 10 years of his life being educated and then thinking in Spanish and then had to learn English. You know, And, and I think oh. you know, my English isn't terrible, but it's very much informed by me not being a native speaker, you know? And I think that that's a, that's a big part of, you know, when people say, why do all the characters sound the same? I say, because they're all, you know, overeducated, neurotic Puerto Ricans. That's how they speak. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. And speaking of that, we're going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about dialogue and characterization. So we were talking about The Middleman. And by the way, if you haven't watched the show, you should just like stop listening to the podcast right now, go watch a season of The Middleman and come back. One of the things that's really interesting about that show is that the dialogue is really stylized in a lot of ways in the same way that the setting is stylized. You know, everything in the show has a specific kind of look to it, including the monsters and the technologies. It's all kind of mid-century, mid-20th century looking. There's a little bit of that in the dialogue too that the dialogue feels a little bit like I'm watching like a really smart cartoon from like the early 1960s is that kind of the character voice that you hear in your head when you're writing or like how does that come about how does that come from your head and then appear in the character's mouth this takes me back to what we're talking about high fantasy dialogue I think that there's dialogue that's really cool to write Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that there's dialogue that looks good on the page 
and then there's dialogue that works well in somebody's mouth, you know? When you're reading something, uh, you don't necessarily have a performance attached to it to figure out whether it's naturalistic or not. So a lot of The Middleman, you know, I wrote it as a script originally, and then it became a comic book, and I just liked... Sometimes I just wrote dialogue based on what I thought would look... Like, what would be a fun sentence to read? Like, that the sentence is taking you on a journey, you know? And, and you guys have read enough of my prose to know that I sort of have these very labyrinthine sentences, you know, and a lot of dashes and commas and joined clauses and things like that. Because I think it's fun to kind of, every idea, every sentence has an idea and it takes you through the idea and it's a little bit of a trip. The way that that lays out on the page is sort of the map to that. And it has to have a certain aesthetic balance to it also. So, so when I write dialogue, like the dialogue in the middleman, I'm thinking of meter, I'm thinking of what the words look like. I'm thinking of the, the size and shape of the words, things like that. And what happened on The Middleman was I just decided, well, what if I just write this without any concern for the actors? And it's a very mean way to write. But I said, you know, I don't want these characters to sound like normal people. This is, a, you know, this is the first time that I'm going to get to write the way that I wish people could speak. The thing that bothers me is when people believe that the way that I, that I wrote that show was not a deliberate choice, that it's just sort of a, you know, look, I think, I think ultimately The Middleman is a show about ideals that's about heroism not being horrible it's about all of these things that are ideas that i've had and i think that there's a kind of a lot of the heightenedness is there because you know you wish you lived in a world where you always made the best quip at the right time and everybody's dialogue popped and everybody had that synergistic rhythm that showed their community because everybody you know all everybody's dialogue just pops and everybody bounces off of each other and all that and everybody's in a sort of brownian motion you know whereas you know like you know, when I want to write about isolated, lonely people, they don't say much and there's long pauses and stuff like that. But what fun is that? <laughs> but, so one thing, that, one thing that jumps out at me about The Middleman is that the characters are funny in different ways. Like Wendy is really sarcastic and, you know, The Middleman is sort of funny in a very earnest way. Like he's funny in a way that and I actually I have a clip that I wanted to play from Avengers Infinity War, which I feel like illustrates this thing of like characters being funny or having really different voices that humor kind of makes that pop. You could destroy life on a scale hitherto undreamt of. Did you seriously just say hitherto undreamt of? Are you seriously leaning on the cauldron of the cosmos? Is that what that so Javi, how do you do that? How do you have characters be funny in different ways? And how does that reveal something about who they are and what their character is? Well, look, I think that, you know, Middleman specifically was such a pop culture driven show that, you know, you gave everybody like, look, the Middleman is a guy who made the choice to be Joe Friday from like the way Dan Aykroyd played Joe Friday. Okay. <laughs> like very, like when, when I met Matt Kiesler and we talked about the character, I said, this isn't a guy who's a weirdo who somehow grew up this way. This is a guy who used to be an a-hole who decided that he wanted to be Captain America. And at a certain point he made the conscious choice of being that person. And that's why his dialogue is that way. And that's why he hates communists, which, you know, his irrational hatred of communism was one of my favorite things to write in that show. Um, and because, you know, it was long after the Cold War. So, you know, this is a guy who cho who made that choice. I think Wendy, you know, is is somebody who doesn't hide the fact that she's smart. Wendy, Wendy doesn't feel the need to make you feel comfortable that she knows a lot and to make you have to meet her on her ground. And I think that's one of the fun things about her character. And one of the things that makes her, for me, a really fun character to write is that she's, you know, she's a very, she's a very secure, uh, you know, young woman. She has a great sense of self and the way she speaks shows that. And that connotes a different kind of humor. You know, the middleman is sort of like Worf in that everything he says is about honor and duty and whatever. And then people make fun of him for that. 
and that's or, or or the things he says are so pompous in the context that they're funny. Wendy is funny in her context because she is the smartest person in the room most of the time, and she doesn't need to apologize for that. And I wanted to show women, you know, especially a female character, having that attitude because it's not something you see in a lot of female characters, especially you know, 13 years ago when when I wrote the sh- when when the show was was produced. Lacey, Wendy's roommate, she developed into this sort of very idealistic character. Her entire thing is about pointing out absurdities, but then she's also kind of really quirky in her own way. So like what she sees as absurd is sometimes different from what you see as absurd. And then the way she addresses it is kind of different. You know, her mind works in a very different way. She's a very associative character and she's not a pop culture character. So she doesn't have a lot of that stuff. She actually is just much. That's why she and the middleman become a couple, you know, it's because they have the same kind of earnestness, but it's generationally divided. Uh, And it's also, he is a sort of analytical alpha male and she is very much like somebody whose mind free associates its way into truth, you know. So I think that knowing those, the, knowing that about your characters before you start writing them is important. And I think you can see it in, in, in the middleman that it took a little bit for some of those characters to hit those grooves because we were finding some of them. But I think by and large, you know, dialogue reflects your cultural context. It reflects, you know, obviously where you grew up. It reflects how you were raised. I don't know how germane this is to this particular topic, but, you know, one of the things I've noticed there's a really interesting way to understand dialogue. And that is if you stop looking at dialogue as the things people say, but you start seeing it more as their prayers. I don't know. I find, I find that I understand a lot people a lot better if I start sort of looking at what they say as more of a reflection of either who they wish they could be or what they wish the world could be, <laughs> you know? So dialogue is a kind of, in a way, it's, a, it's the aspirational part of the character. And then does that mean that the places in the story where we're not hearing dialogue? Is that kind of where reality has a chance to kind of assert itself a little oh bit? God, what hell are you talking about where people don't speak all the time? Uh, <laughs> that's why we had you on here because <laughs> dialogue heavy guy. But I do feel like if you think of dialogue as aspirational in that way, and I think this goes way beyond your own writing, but I think it happens a lot, um, especially on Uh, in genre shows um, and in genre films, it is interesting to see the quiet places in the story as being like the, the sort of reality. And then the, the dialogue pops off of it as the kind of heightened part where suddenly, you know, these characters are getting to be who they really want to be, even though they're living like in a shack or like in an abandoned spaceship in the middle of the desert or wherever they're living. That sucks ass. One of the reasons why I think 2001, a space odyssey, is such a singular film. So 2001 is a movie where none of the dialogue is dramatic. You know, very little of the dialogue yeah. in that movie. I mean, there's Haywood Floyd and the Russian scientists and Dave Bowman and Hal. And that's that's two scenes in a movie that's over two hours long. And those are the only yeah. two scenes. I mean, and there's the, yeah, there's the It's Full of Stars and that's pretty right. much. Uh, so, yeah. so, you know, one of the, I think one of the reasons that movie is so unsettling and that it's so singular and so weird is how it lives in silence for so long. And how it completely tells you that very little of human communication is anything other than banalities and and just sort of inconsequential. I mean, Kubrick was such a misanthrope and he was so convinced of the inscrutable indifference of the universe that he lets you sit in this in, in a lot of silence for a long time. I think one of the reasons people dislike that movie so much is that is that it is deeply, deeply unsettling and uncomfortable to go through those long stretches of, of quiet, you know? I also think that that was part of his 
effort to try to create something that was realistic. I mean, one of his big decisions was, no, we are not going to have whooshing noises in space. You would not hear whooshing noises in space. You wouldn't hear pew, pew, pew. And so he was like, you know, we're going to have this incredible music that's like really obviously not the, you know, it's obviously music that's being pumped in by the film, extra diegetic music, as we used to say when we were studying film. And so it kind of heightens the fact that yeah, we're in this hyper-realistic space world where like the space station is branded with crest logos everywhere. And like everything is, you know, kind of almost disappointingly bland, um, even though it looks super awesome at the same time. So I do think that that's, that's right. That part of what's unsettling about that film is like this realistic silence of like what it would really be to be in space, which is a lot of sitting around um, or running on your treadmill or talking to computers that are kind of grumpy. <laughs> you know, it's funny. There's a movie that came out recently called Ad Astra. I know that the movie is considered by many people to be deeply flawed and perhaps even problematic, but I, I really, I really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed so much of it. And it's one of it's it, that movie and Apocalypse Now are two movies that I go, how much better would this movie have? Been, would this movie have, have either one of you seen Ad Astra? Uh, not yet. I've been meaning to. I haven't, but I have seen. I've seen Apocalypse Now, yeah. of course. <laughs> well, it, both movies. I think how much better would these movies have been without the voiceover? You know, as great as the voiceover is in Apocalypse Now, and as well written as it is. I mean, Michael Hare is a. I wonder how much harder that movie would be to watch in terms of your sense of discomfort and your sense of impending dread if you didn't have Martin Sheen telling you everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, look, my biggest fear in the world is silence. I don't know if you can notice that. To be forced into silence or to be forced to witness silence is extraordinarily difficult for me. So I think that that I look at that as an object of fear. And I think you're absolutely right. As I think about what you said, it's like, a lot of silence is where you lose control. While you can speak, you can control a situation. You can say what you wish it were, what you wish it would be, or what you want from the other person. Where there's no talking, there isn't that, you know? All right. I think that's actually a good place to end. So thank you so much for joining us, Javi. Can you tell us where people can find you on the interwebs? On the interwebs. Uh, I can be found on Twitter at OKBJGM. Uh, that's my handle on Twitter and on Instagram. It's also the uh, name of my website, okbjgm.com, which is where I have things like writing samples for Bibles and scripts and stuff like that, that aspiring writers have found useful. Um, You can also see me on uh, The Dark Crystal, uh, or at least hear lines that I wrote, uh, Age of Resistance on Netflix. And uh, coming soon, I'll be, uh, I'm one of the writers on the revival of Cowboy Bebop for Netflix also. That's so so uh, exciting. Oh my talk god. About, talk about translation. That's a that's that's a really interesting one. Yeah. Oh yeah. So thank you so much for listening. This has been Our Opinions Are Correct. If you like our podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to our podcast anywhere that podcasts are available. Apple, Google, Libsign, all the places. And we're on Twitter at OOAC Pod and Facebook as our opinions are correct. And Thanks so much to Veronica Simonetti for being an incredible, valiant audio producer. And thanks so much to Chris Palmer for the music. And thanks again to you for listening. And we'll see you in two weeks. Bye!